This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and this morning I'm speaking with Joseph Buxbaum, professor of psychiatry in Mount Sinai and the director of the Seaver Autism Center. Joseph or Dr. Buxbaum, however you'd like me to um, to refer to you, thank you for being on the show and good morning. Good morning. Uh, my pleasure and call me Joseph. Okay, perfect. Covered all that. I think many people who listen to this show, because it's all about always on topics related to autism spectrum disorder, probably have heard of the Seaver Autism Center. You certainly um, have established, and you know, there's a there's a large footprint within the field in terms of the impacts that are being made and the work that you do. But I'm thrilled this morning to have you on the show to be able to share with us some of the like kind of give an overview of all the areas that that the Seaver Center is involved in, and then I'll probably have some follow up questions for you in terms of certain areas. But first, if you wouldn't mind, could you give us a little background about yourself, um, both professionally, educationally, and if there's any personal connection to autism that you'd like to talk about, we'd love to understand who you are a little bit first. Sure. So uh, I'm a molecular scientist um, and, and a neuroscientist, so my interest is the brain and how do molecules and in the brain kind of impact behavior and development and things like that. I was trained, I did my, undergrad, I did my graduate work in neuroscience at the Weizmann Institute, and I did a, a kind of fairly long postdoc and formal training with Paul Greengard at the Rockefeller University uh, before coming to Mount Sinai. So I'm what, they, what might be called a basic or preclinical scientist. Okay. And yeah. What does preclinical mean for those of us not in the know? <laughs> So it's a way, you know, when there are, there are, there's what people sometimes call pure science, which is science for its own sake, right? It doesn't mean it's not impactful, like you know, studying the nature of the universe. Uh, and then there's preclinical science, which is science that's really directed or research that direct, that's directed at clinical questions, but looking at them from a more basic point of view. So maybe studying, you know, a gene of interest in a cell line in vitro or in a Petri dish rather than, you know, directly interacting with patients for that particular gene or doing both, right? So preclinical is just a, a way of saying, asking questions about clinical disorders from a more basic perspective. Okay. Uh, so in general, generally speaking, when it comes to research, our preclinical work or the preclinical scientists are, and researchers are working then probably at some point with the scientists and researchers who are then taking that to a more maybe practical setting, working with um, actual individual people? Does that... Yes. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer in integrated approaches to autism spectrum disorder, mm-hmm. by which I mean that, you know, everybody has to be in, this, in the room together. If we kind of silo out the clinicians and the clinician scientists from the basic preclinical scientists, mm-hmm. we are just not going to be that effective. And so, uh, you know, the, in, the, in my view of the ideal world, there's a constant dialogue between all the, all the, all, all the researchers, clinicians, and stakeholders about what's important and what can we learn from the preclinical side to the clinical side and, and, and back again. Okay. 
All right. Yeah. Well, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think anytime you're, you're talking about, especially something like autism, where there's still so many questions um, and so many different approaches that I, in my understanding that scientists and researchers are taking in terms of looking at, you know, organics, foundations, where, you know, where it's coming from, what the, you know, what part of the brain is affected, and then also the very sort of day, daily behavioral components and also then treatment and there's just so much I, I won't even keep going because I'm probably sounding you know babbling a little bit but um, but your approach makes sense to me so so what um, how long have you been specifically in the field of, of autism research 23 years wow what was the impetus to get involved 23 years ago so I was at Rockefeller University, and I was working on Alzheimer's disease, um, and I came to Mount Sinai to continue that work, but uh, the chair of the department, Ken Davis, who's now the president and CEO of all of the Mount Sinai Health System, had an autism program, uh, actually the Seaver Autism Center, mm-hmm. and he encouraged me to think about applying some of you know my skills to autism, and it, it got immediately both very interesting and uh, very compelling. Um, you know, autism and Alzheimer's are both can be very devastating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and I, you know, and I still have a str- strong interest in Alzheimer's disease. But disorders that really affect you know, you know, early life and then persist for life. You know, they seem particularly demanding of our attention and our you know, uh, our efforts, so to speak. Right. Okay. So yeah, that makes that's that's so. As you're starting your work, then all those years back with um, the Seaver Autism Center and and entering into the Mount Sinai community, do you see? Since you've studied both, do you, you know? Are there similarities beyond just sort of the the level of of disruption to one's lifespan that but that both autism, uh, which is a lifelong disability, and um, and Alzheimer's, do you see more of a connection there than maybe is being talked about more like out there in the in the community now? Uh, that's a great question, and I would say that in aggregate, there's probably not a connection, but there may be. Specific genes mm-hmm. that that kind of play a role in both disorders, and, and those are genes that actually have something to do with you know brain function and cognitive function. Mm-hmm. But there aren't many examples of that, but there's certainly one or two that come to mind. Mm-hmm. But I would say if you look at the entire you know if you take a, the entire kind of universe, if you will, of autism spectrum disorder and Alzheimer's, there are not that many ties. Okay, one is. You know, just curious because I was struck yeah, by what you said. Sure. I mean, if you think about it from the the non clinical side, if you think about it from a family's perspective, um, yeah. uh, I don't have any personal experience with Alzheimer's um, at this point, and and um, but I you know I, I know people who've had loved ones develop it both early and and sort of later in life. And what strikes me, um, and I, it really just occurred to me when you when you started to talk about your background is. I realized that some of the comments that family members and caretakers talk about some of the language is it, rem, is, it reminds me of um, of the way people sort of talk about the uh, understanding that this is something that that is going to be a part of the whole family's life for the rest of this individual's life and and the way the family kind of goes moves through life together. So so I guess it's more what's striking me is just more that um, that broad how it touches. Everybody. It doesn't just sort of touch the person who has it. It touches everyone around them in some capacity. Yeah, I would, I would agree completely, especially with severe autism. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the, 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 the caregiver is just like you said, looking at, you know, an ongoing you know, relationship with, 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 of course, with the individual, but also with the disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, um, uh, I, I could get lost in stuff like this. So let's move on. I want to, I want to go back, um, to kind of your, your trajectory. So you joined, um, Mount Sinai. You met Ken Davis. He was obviously encouraging you to get involved in the Seaver Center, which you did. So then what was your role there and when did you become the director or was that an immediate, an immediate role? I became the director, um, I guess now 11 years ago. Okay. So when I first joined the Seaver Autism Center, you know, I, I took responsibility for the molecular genetics of autism. So that, that's an example of a preclinical question, right? And you kind of mentioned it before, asking about the causes of autism, right? They may not have a direct, immediate treatment impact, so they're much more in the preclinical research space. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I do a lot of is work with a large consortium to identify genes that are that are associated with risk for autism. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, basic genetic research. We take a lot of samples, blood samples from individuals across the world. Our most recent study was 36,000 individuals. Wow. And then we look at, um, we, we try and identify genes that are clearly increasing risk for autism. So that's a preclinical study, but they, we do it with the hope that the more we understand about the causes of autism, the better we'll be able to provide effective, effective treatments. Well, absolutely. You can't really, I mean, there has to be a basis for all things, right? And, and to come up with effective treatments. Um, I know that, 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 you know, the, the importance of looking at, um, the genetic makeup of individuals with autism, but also their siblings, right? And maybe there's twin studies and, and family members and then neurotypical peers. It's all part of what's going on to, um, to help sort of set the foundation. That's, that's my understanding. I do have a chance to interview other researchers. So, um, is is that is that part of yeah, that's, a, that's, that's exactly doing. right. So okay. you know, when anytime you can grab hold of even a, a, a small thread mm-hmm. about understanding risk, it gives you enormous. You know, uh, it changes the whole game, right? So once we find a gene for autism, um, we can also manipulate that gene in cells in culture or even in mice in the laboratory, and so that gives us the opportunity to study. You know. And, uh, the, uh, neuroscience in vitro and in, and in mice. And obviously those are things we can't do with current technology to the same degree in an individual, nor, nor possible would we want to, right? Mm-hmm. But with a mouse, I can ask very kind of pointed questions about how does this gene affect brain development, how does it affect behavior, and I can look at, it, I look, I can look at the gene in isolation of all other factors. Okay. Because the mouse is in a in a very, very controlled environment, and I control completely every aspect of its genetic background um, and much of the much of its kind of environment. Right? Okay. So I can ask, just what is this gene doing to brain development, separate, for, separate from everything else? And so that's then the next step. Once you find the cause, you can begin to ask, how does that cause impact brain function and development? And then again, the hope is that that study will say, okay, this is a, a clear change in the brain we're seeing, are there treatments that can improve that? 
Okay. Well, that is a, that's a good place to take a pause. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm just going to prep you now. I'm going to ask you if uh, there's anything that you can share, you know, um, from what you found so far. And then, you know, hopefully get into some of the other work that uh, occurs at the Seaver Center now that you're director and, um, and how it all kind of coincides together. Oh, sure. Looking forward to it. All right. Sounds good. This is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. If you live, work, or frequently visit the Hudson Valley, you've probably passed by the sign for Anderson Center for Autism countless times. Have you ever wondered what our award-winning educational and residential program is all about? Well, let me shed some light. Ours is a place where evidence-based practices marry creative solutions, where students with autism learn how to communicate using whatever modality works best for them, where they learn independent living and vocational skills in nurturing environments, where their families enjoy visits full of special moments, where professionals come from all corners of the globe to obtain high-level training, where staff build rewarding careers, and where people develop lifelong connections. Learn more about our work optimizing the quality of life for people with autism by visiting us online at andersoncenterforautism.org. That's andersoncenterforautism.org. Or schedule a tour by calling us today at 845-889-4034. 845-889-4034. Welcome back to 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and I'm talking with Joseph Buxbaum, who is the director of the Seaver Autism Center and professor of psychiatry at Mount Sinai. Joseph, thank you for the overview, um, the first half of the show, of your work and your background and your interest, where that all developed, which led us to the last part of what you were saying before the break about the way you conduct your preclinical studies and preclinical research. Um, so I'm wondering if you can want to share any outcomes that you found so far um, as you're looking at these individual genes and, and how they might be, I guess, connected in some way to an autism diagnosis or some of the um, typical behaviors that we may see associated with autism. Sure. So, you know, the, the study I mentioned before with 36,000 individuals, yeah. we report over 100 autism genes that we find and we're, that we're quite confident are contributing significantly to risk in certain individuals. So as I said before, each gene is an opportunity to, to go then to take the next step and understand, try and understand the function of the gene and how it impacts development and behavior. And what we've been able to do at the Seaver Center is not only do the, the gene discovery and also some of the functional follow-up that I mentioned in cells or in animals, but we've also been able to start bringing in, in uh, participants that have mutations in those genes and ask questions about the, the phenotype or the manifestation of the, the autism and the other behavioral and neurological aspects in that individual mm-hmm. uh, and begin to relate you know, from the gene through functional studies in, in, in the laboratory to clinical manifestations and then back. You know, a certain gene mutation seems to be associated also with, you know, obsessive behaviors. Mm-hmm. We can actually go back and look at, the, look at the animals and see if there's obsessive behaviors there. We can go back to the genes and ask, is the same gene also implicated in obsessive compulsive disorders, for example? Huh. So... But, but yeah, so that's a, that's, that ends up kind of adding a lot of information about a gene across very, very multiple levels of integration, right? Molec- genetic, molecular, cellular, you know, organismal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, you know, I, I believe strongly opens the way for precision medicine, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the idea mm-hmm. that if you're going to give a drug or a medicine to somebody, in many cases... 
you're, the more you know about the cause or the biology of that particular individual's disorder, the more you can tailor the medicine to that individual. Right? And the classic example, of course, is cancer, which in the past we gave very strong non-specific drugs to treat cancer, and they kind of worked for multiple cancers because they basically you know, impacted the fact that cancer cells replicate too much. Mm-hmm. But everything you're hearing about in terms of breakthrough cancer treatments these days is about specifically targeting a gene mutation or something else in a specific cancer, and, and then you see things where, you know, a short, tri- a short treatment and there's complete remission or something very dramatic, right? Right. So, so precision medicine is really where a lot of medicine is trying to go. Mm-hmm. And since we are quite clear <laughs> that autism is highly heterogeneous, I mean, not only when you think about the, the behavioral manifestations of autism mm-hmm. and how severe autism is, but when you think about the causes of autism, it's highly heterogeneous, right? I, I mentioned 100 genes so far, and there's probably more to be found, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that tells us right away that you know, if there's, gonna, there's, there's unlikely to be, you know, a single drug that's going to help everybody with autism, right? Right. Um, and so then you have to go to precision medicine. And so we have been able to even take the next step now and say, with these individuals with this rare mutation, let's do a clinical trial of something that we think, based on our preclinical work, might be helpful. Mm-hmm. And we're trying that compound, which may have been tried already in autism generally, but now we're trying it in a specifically defined subgroup with similar biology. Right. So maybe it didn't work so well when you gave it to 100 individuals where you didn't know the biology, but it may work very well if you took the same treatment and put it into and tried it in 20 people with shared biology. Right. right. Well, sort of like taking the um, the phrase that's out there commonly throughout the autism community, which is if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. And exactly. my, you know, because of where I work and I, I interact with people on the spectrum every day, but mostly at Anderson, we work with individuals who are on the more severely challenged end of the spectrum. You know, it, it really is true. And, and I want to go back to one thing. You, you, you used an example of like obsessive compulsive behaviors and we see a lot of that right but there we also serve a tremendous number of both children and adults severely impacted by autism who show no of none of those behaviors who don't have obsessive compulsive uh behaviors or symptoms at all so what i like from again a a sort of um more maybe more personal, I don't know what you'd call it, but just from the person-centered aspect of what you're talking about is that precision medicine may have a better chance of really treating each individual person to impact their own individual quality of life based on what how autism is manifesting within them. Um, and I 100% agree with you that, that autism is one of those things where um, it really does look different for every person. And the severity of each symptom also looks different for every person. So um, I'm, I'm getting more excited about the work that you're doing because, <laughs> because it seems to be, from a research perspective, leading to a more, um, you know, maybe an eventual outcome of, um, of really what our mission is at Anderson, which is to optimize the quality of life for people with autism. And that's... That's something that you kind of, when you really break it down, you have to be able to do individually. Right. And as you said, in some ways, you know, uh, Anderson and other places are already doing it based on the phenotype, based on the manifestation. Right. 
mm-hmm. somebody comes in that has an ADHD-like phenotype, attentional deficits in addition to autism, you're going to treat that attentional deficit to the best, you know, to yeah. the best of one's ability. Uh, and so there already is tailored treatments, and then precision medicine as it takes it more from the more basic side and up. Yeah. And I'm going to give my caveats or my <laughs> disclaimer, sure. <laughs> because I'm sure you know that, you know, sometimes th- there's a there's reactions to talking about treating autism, treating autism with, with, with medicine and drugs and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, I think the important thing that I kind of emphasize is just like you, we, do, we, we, we have a fairly significant focus on severe autism. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people with very, very complicated and difficult behavioral manifestations and, you know, to, 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 to the level that, you know, you, you, drugs and medicines would be great if we had any that worked. Right? Mm-hmm. In the same way we treat severe OCD and we treat severe ADHD, we would want to be able to treat severe autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, no, I think I think look, <laughs> look, I I um I think it's an important thing to note and and also to recognize that look, this is a this is a uh, you know an interview and a discussion about one aspect of of work that's going on in the field. It's I think that there's always going to be opinions out there. What I used to say when I, I was the clinical director at Anderson years ago, and the way I always looked at the, the combination of some of the, of the daily, day in, day out, residential school, and we, you know, working, um, building relationships, working with OTPT, speech, education, residential activities of daily living, socialization, skill development, um, and applied behavior analysis alongside uh, many of our students and adults who are also being treated by a psychiatrist, um, one of the things that, that, that often occurred to me was that for some individuals who were so severely impacted behaviorally for any number of reasons, sometimes which we didn't know exactly where it was coming from, um, medication sometimes would offer, I used to call it opening a window. Um, yeah. And it would sort of let, lead to an opportunity where those other interventions that are not chemically based um, yeah. would have an opportunity to be more successful. And for some people, that was really an incredibly positive outcome was to see just a little bit of a, uh, of a window there, a, a brief period where the ABA could really take hold and we would see some significant changes. But the goal, I think, um, it sounds like for you and, and certainly for us at Anderson is really to, to, be, to, to, to further the knowledge in the field and certainly uh, research as to the preclinical stuff, sort of why it's occurring, what genes are involved is very important in a number of ways and not just when it comes to um, precision medicine. I just think it's, a, it's an interesting and, and exciting step forward in, in the entire field. So I appreciate you talking about it today and sharing with us. Um, we only have a couple more minutes. Is there, is there a, a really brief you know, overview that you can give of, of what else is going on at Seaver Center or why you want you think people should go to your website or or give a call over there if they're looking for certain things or are you looking for people to get involved in studies you know what what else is out there at Seaver so uh, very briefly we have a we have a strong program in epidemiology of autism we ask questions about 
very large you know, co- co- cohorts of 20 million people, for example, across the world, and what are the environmental and other causes of autism. We have a robust preclinical research group that I mentioned already, and a clinical research group. And then we have a new group that's focusing on drug discovery and development, at the very, particularly the very early stages of drug discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, on the clinic, within the clinical group, there is the treatment group, and then there is a clinical research group. And um, we try, uh, we, you know, we, we like to have opportunities for anybody to participate. We can't always do it, but we try and see, make sure that we have protocols that we are suitable for adults with autism, with people with more severe autism. Uh, and of course, we also look at some of the rare genetic disorders associated with autism. But our, if our website um, is 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 there it has a summary of some of the studies and also we also we also try and have a single phone number where a family can call and ask about not only what are the you know what are some of the treatment opportunities but also what are some of the research opportunities and we try and give them a fairly um, comprehensive answer right on that right away. <laughs> All right. Great. So basically, so so we would encourage people then to go to the website. Well, SeaverAutismCenter.org org will mm-hmm. bring you to the, the the primary website. Say that again. Autism, SeaverAutismCenter.org. Center. Um, yeah. And that's where you can also find information um, about all the things that are going on at Seaver, as well as a phone number where you can call for more information about the 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 current programs, the clinical work, as well as research studies that might be going on. Um, Because I know in that field, it's always good to have families and individuals be aware of what's out there and happening so that if there is an interest in getting more involved, um, that that, uh, pool of of people remains connected. So um, Joseph Buxbaum, director of the Seaver Autism Center, thank you so much for being on the show today and and really um, best of luck with your continued work. It sounds really exciting and would love an update in the future. Thank you very much. It was good talking to you. Okay. This is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski. And remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to 1 in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week. 